0: Pleasure in jokes has seemed to us to arise from an economy in expenditure upon inhibition. The pleasure in the comic from an economy in expenditure upon ideation, in parentheses, upon cathexis. And the pleasure in humor from an economy in expenditure upon feeling. In all three modes of working our mental apparatus, the pleasure is derived from an economy. All three are agreed in representing methods of regaining from mental activity a pleasure which has, in fact, been lost through the development of that activity. For the euphoria which we endeavor to reach by these means is nothing other than the mood of a period of life in which we were accustomed to deal with our psychical work in general with a small expenditure of energy, the mood of our childhood, when we were ignorant of the comic... When we were incapable of jokes and when we had no need of humor to make us feel happy in our life.
1: The very rules of eating of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of security, which is how <laughs> the world state of things, in violence without object
2: this is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the queen, the vanishing
0: point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
3: Thanks for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we're sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with our guest today, just want to mention we've got a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash MUHH. Consider dropping us a buck a month or leaving us a nice review on iTunes. We are bringing back Jake Flores, 2018 Ice Comic of the Year, host of the uh, Poddam America podcast, to discuss Freud's book, Jokes and the Unconscious. Welcome back to the show, Jake. It's been a minute.
0: Thank you for inviting me back to discuss this hilarious joke <laughs> about yes, uh, comedy. Did you learn anything uh, useful for your act? Are you going to make some Freud jokes? I'm going to read the, what I just read at the top. <laughs> Joe. Oh my God! Nice. Begin every one of my sets from now on, and the people will be rolling with laughter. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an Andy Kaufman bit, right? Just like
2: start reading Freud and see what see what. Just see how read the, the whole book. React. That's yeah. That's just your new act. Just yeah. read instead <laughs> of the Great Gatsby. Read uh, was it the Great Gatsby that he he read? I think it was.
0: Just read Freud's
2: joke book, and uh, yeah,
0: you'll have them. You'll be a star. This book is so it's not even just this book as a comic when anyone tries to discuss comedy from like a technical standpoint like this for some reason it's always like the most over the top clinical and enraging and like weird and humorless thing imaginable. I don't know why it is. It's there's something almost antithetical about it, which is why it's cool that he tried to tackle it. Like I get what he's doing you know this book contains his specific version of that thing which is like nails on a chalkboard to a comic so it's <laughs> <fun to read. laughs>
3: like taylor said in the uh, pre show i think this is really like we bait and switch you with this being a book about jokes in the unconscious
0: it would be yeah. funny if I was like going into this thinking like this is going to yeah, be right, hilarious. Yeah. Then, <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good rib. Two hundred pages in, like, when's he going to tell a fucking joke? Yeah,
3: <laughs> waiting for the punchline. This-
0: but it does seem like a like a bait and switch, you know, where it's it seems like it's
2: it's trying to approach a more popular audience. I think he writes this. Is it 1905? I forgot the time period. I vaguely remember. We're seeing 1908 oh off the top of my 1908? head. 1908? Okay. So in 1905, he had written a book that I find actually funnier uh, called Three Essays on Sexuality. Uh, which, <laughs> I mean, he's
0: usually hilarious. Yeah, I
2: mean, some, uh, Freud is one of those people that... He's actually a good writer. I know this book doesn't show it. I think he's a good writer. He can be funny, I think maybe without even meaning to. Like when we did the case studies on Schreber... And things like this, you know, he's he tries to talk about sensitive issues like being fucked by God in a way that that is, as you said, clinical and dry. And somehow it it's because of that disparity between the content and the and the form. Despite him,
0: you know, yeah, well, that is pretty funny. I mean, I can see that contrast. And uh, well, I'm almost saying, having read this book, I'm like, okay, I can almost see how he could see that contrast. Maybe you could make a Freudian case for that i don't know it was really interesting to read i mean like i kind of went into it loathing it and then came out of it you know going i think actually he uh at least got near some things and it was very interesting to like go under the hood and try to actually think about what this thing that i'm constantly trying to do in a writing sense is because basic understanding with people in comedy is more that like we're all dealing with something that cannot be defined so fuck you for trying to define it and uh you know most people get it wrong i mean especially like the the thing you know that modern comics complain about a lot is you know i'm a shaman i divine things and these fucking stupid people from college are always coming in and trying to tell me punching up and punching down right and that's like Mm -hmm. completely reductive and looking at things in a you know they just it's insulting to the fucking thing i'm doing or whatever there's usually a lot of that going on when people write about comedy, but I don't know. I think I've got some, some tools that might work having read most of this book. <laughs> <laughs> this also might be entirely antithetical to art. Like I might try to sit down and write a set this week and, and be like, okay, I'm good. What are my unexpressed wishes? Let's start there. And then like, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> like it doesn't work at all. I don't know. It's kind, it's kind of like,
3: cool. once you see the, like once you kind of see how a movie is made, particularly, I think in editing and shit, I think in particular, like reverse shot sequences where you see the people talking and you realize that those are probably not even, they're not even in the same room at the same time, etc. cetera. It takes yeah. you out of it. It's kind of the same thing.
0: Yeah, there's a saying I like, uh, and I think it's misappropriate. I think it used to mean something else from like Maya Angelou or something, but somebody said it about joke writing once, which I really liked. Which is, you want to hear, uh, you want to hear the song, don't dissect the bird, just <laughs> you know, yeah. kill it. You don't want to know what's going on inside of there, you know, just hear it and enjoy it.
3: But for this book, I think for me, the bait and switch was more like this book isn't about jokes at all necessarily. It's about Freud's exploration of this kind of hydraulic model of the unconscious so like Mm -hmm. i was thinking about like a balloon the unconscious is a balloon pinch the balloon in one area right that energy or that that mass shifts elsewhere right so that's kind of what's happening is your unconscious is like this sort of amorphous mass and there's zones of intensity on that on your body right your mouth your ass your you know your genitalia etc right and Pushing that balloon in different directions is going to cause different reactions. And I think one of those reactions that he's trying to, one of the arguments that he's trying to make is like, there's a, there's a cyclical energy that gets built up, right? There's that gets dammed up. And then through the joke, that energy is, is released, right? Like, so you have this, this spike of intensity on like one side of the balloon and the joke helps kind of distribute that energy throughout the whole of the unconscious so that it doesn't overheat, if you will
2: i like the yeah. balloon. i like the balloon metaphor i've always thought of it as like a boiler like a hot hot water heater or some shit but i i think the balloon is is, is more imaginative just thinking of the building up of pressure and, and letting it off you know because freud even comes back to this thing he mentions it very shortly in his writing on morning morning and melancholia when he kind of and he brings it up too in the rat man if you remember coop but the point I was going to make is I'm one of those people like dealing with loss. I have to make jokes. And I think that like my sister is the exact opposite. She, she wants to, she wants to, to cry and have a good cry. And I think that I come off as insensitive or cynical, you know, I come off as um, kind of a bad joke (laughs) about like us losing our father or something like that. And I wonder, I mean, how do you feel about this, this, I mean, there's yeah, a repression, Latin, right? Yeah,
3: there's a repression in place, right? And that's the damming up of the psychical energy. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Freud's model, I think, is too simplified, but it does have some resonance, right? It does, it does illustrate something, I think, about how some aspects of how the psyche, the unconscious, can be impacted. And it's definitely yeah. like there's something to do with language and words. You know, it's mm-hmm. he very interestingly talks about like this libidinal investment in words themselves. And I was thinking about that, too, as far as it's weird that we invest. You know what I mean? Like, you just broke your toe, right? But, like, if you stub your toe, what's the first thing that you want to do? You want to, like, yell out, fuck, right? What's the mechanism behind that, right? That's kind of illustrating that that hydro, hydraulic model or whatever. Mm-hmm. It feels like that balloon's going to burst, right? So, you like, you yell something, and then that kind of releases the pressure.
0: Yeah. I like the balloon model. I like the boiler in my head. It was like a hydraulic engine, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that
3: too. Yeah. Uh,
0: pistons. I was thinking about pistons a yeah. lot like right. firing and then like gas sort of coming out in the form of a laugh, you know? But the thing you were describing about funerals, you know, I like I'm a comic, you know, I find somebody I'm somebody who's drawn to tell jokes. And like, I, I can't stop telling jokes at a funeral. Yeah. And I noticed it's definitely a defense mechanism. I'll be like rattling them off. I'll like have like a tear come down my face, but not be engaged currently in the act of grief. Like it'll hit me like a week later, but like the body is split in that way. And like mm-hmm. the beating is split to where it's like, you know, giving you the joke process to, to deal with the amount of, you know, whatever this other thing is, you know, it's like weird to like, you know, look at yourself kind of externally and <laughs> notice that stuff, but I totally have. And I noticed in this book, Freud, he does touch, once or twice on like who is compelled to tell jokes like because i was kind of looking for that in here who's what's his theory of who a stand-up comedian yeah yeah i like
2: that
0: everybody has this you know this or that theory and a lot of them are just like oh you know comics are the most damaged people and that's why they you know they have this thing going on that i'm describing or whatever his was that comics are exhibitionists <laughs> so yeah, cool. yeah yeah
2: yeah because it's cause it has to be sexual for freud right at base right it has to yeah. be yeah what do you think about that? Is that is there a part of stand up that's that's exhibitionism? Uh, maybe you
3: look at I somebody mean, like Louis C.K. and his whole thing. Oh you know, God, well of, <laughs> that's that's all he knows. That might be uh, the, the except the exception, <laughs> that, the exception that proves the rule, though.
0: So yeah, it's possible. I mean, there's like a thrill that you get out of it, and I think yeah. people don't understand that about comics. People often, you know, attempt to motivate comics more altruistically like when someone's writing about a comedian and they try to explain you know why this person did this thing for so many years it's usually oh they love to make people laugh and in my experience not really the case i don't really give a fuck about people it's you know we're thrill seekers right there is something you get from being on stage and it's it's addictive because it's high risk high reward like usually yeah. you bomb but then like when you kill marron it's best fucking mm-hmm. world right so there might be something to his theory on that angle of it but it also definitely is like the other thing i I don't know but you know it's complicated because there are exceptions to the rule you know you do find yourself walking around going every comic is damaged we're all dark and then you meet somebody who's hilarious who's like i'm not like that at all and they end up fucks up your whole thing right yeah yeah so like i
2: wonder, like someone like jim gaffigan he's got five kids he tells more or less pretty
3: innocuous jokes yeah yeah
2: is he also like dark you know in the back of his head and he's just he's just projecting forward an image of, of... i heard he
0: killed a guy <laughs> i never heard that that's i was talking around no i, <laughs> I think that's
3: jerry seinfeld actually. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i mean well with squeaky clean guys like they're complicated because so they they put forward that idea of like right. I'm a fucked up person but then like I can't remember the name of him off the top of my head. But well, then just, you
3: have like, Bill Cosby, right? Because Bill Cosby right. always yeah. did clean comedy yeah. and turns out yeah. to be
0: a fucking sadist. So I don't so. trust any of them because <laughs> usually it turned out to be like that. I'm like actually exactly. serious. like I don't know, I'm joking, but I honestly like I mean, there's there's a famous one that turned out to be a pedophile in uh, mm. the UK. I can't remember off the top of my head his name it seems to be like a cover most of the time. And then ironically, the people that are more human usually will show you their ugliness a little bit. And right. The yeah. The less there seems to be like everybody just has ugliness. So, right. I don't really even know if that maps. I don't know.
2: I always thought about it like Bob Saget, you know, being on full house and the character he played was, you know, family guy or whatever, but his stand-up was, as you said, it's just, I don't know if it's some of the raunchiest, but it was, it was dirty jokes and things like that, you know? So. Yeah. Totally different persona than what one would assume. You know, I, I never really watched it growing up, but my sister did, and I remember kind of. It was years later. I think it was watching Half Baked. You know, I'm like, hey, that's interesting, right? Bob Saget has a yeah. little cameo. Is he the one that says that you ever, ever sucked dick for Coke? Yeah, yeah, like that? that's him. Um, right.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what that tells you about him is like. He's a filthy comic, like that's who mm-hmm. he was. And then I think he just got the job, <laughs>
1: yeah, because exactly. house and
0: stuff, and then had to play it's it. It was ironic, <laughs> yeah. But he's a person who would like he he didn't put forth the clean Bob right. Saget character as a way of hiding anything. He's he's the person he show you he'll show you when he's free to do so is the filthy comic, which then you know what happens? He dies, and you hear nothing but good things about him. So. Right?
1: Yeah. I mean
0: kind of proves what i you know yeah the, and it seemed to prove it but you know it's one point in my corner or whatever <laughs> what else? we're keeping
2: score we're keeping score here
0: i am oh.
3: trying
1: to figure this <laughs> shit out
2: <laughs>
3: although um, i i think it is kind of interesting though that to think about you know i guess comics that don't cuss or whatever in their act usually it's like your uncle or your dad or somebody that's like you know somebody who can make me laugh without cussing like now that's really impressive and in a way, like if you're looking at Freud's model of this repression, that kind of has some currency, but I don't think it's the full story. So I just, I don't, I don't know. That's kind of like a, a shitty devil's advocate comment, but.
2: Well, there's a way you can't. I just, over- wonder,
3: I just wonder what you guys think about that.
2: I just I real quick in this
3: context not like overall like this is not my joke theory but I'm just kind of curious
2: I think there's a way that you can rely as a crutch on on too much you know curse words and you deaden them so there has to be kind of a balance I mean would you would you agree with that Jake
0: yeah I mean I think that what if we're looking at it, especially with freud's model of what jokes do here is that you know he sort of describes them as like thought processes which you sort of um short circuit and like jump ahead a normal um an amount of circuitry that you would normally take x amount of time to cross but you get there quicker with something else and like because The power of curse words is simply that they're taboo. They Mm -hmm. shock the thought process you're having at any given moment, especially when you're young and they are taboo. And so there is a a point... To which you could argue that they're uncreative because you always have this thing at hand that you mm-hmm. can simply do this with no matter what you're saying because it right. is kind of just the joke in itself which is why the argument would be that to, to accomplish this with normal words is simply it was more creative you know that being said now you're in a philosophical argument which is do, do i care i mean i got the outcome of- right, right yeah. I love using these because they, you know, they, they do this thing. Right. And they do probably deaden over time. And, uh, you know, but, that just raises all these interesting questions about like, well, do I try to keep my palate pure or right. do I, uh, do I evolve? Cause like personally for me, I love curse words and say them all the fucking time, you know, didn't even do that consciously just now. when I said that, and like, well, all this has caused for me is my sense of humor to evolve and become more creative simply because they don't work because they've deadened in this way. So like a lot of people who are very filthy, you know, probably end up trying to come up with creative, more creative ways to, to jump the short circuit, you know, if that's what's happening.
2: And you mentioned palate cleanser. I mean, in between, you got to have like a, like a space of cleanliness, the little, the little ginger, so you can go back in for that to have effect. You know, it's a. Uh, since we're on the topic of curse words, I mean, one of the, most famous comics almost like the comedians comedian is george carlin who kind of brought this to the fore and made it an explicit almost like a meta commentary on comedy by talking about the the band words and and things like this do you think that 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 kind of do you have any thoughts on on carlin and, and sort of what he was doing there and if that's still relevant
0: yeah, I think it's absolutely relevant that he figured that out and sort of zeroed in on something that was strange about curse words that we all interacted with all the time without really consciously thinking about. It's just one of those things that, like, if you stop and think about it for a minute, it's extremely absurd that they're mm-hmm. in yeah, words. Yeah,
1: exactly. Right.
0: Weird. You know, I think he might have also loved curse words because they've performed this function that we're talking mm-hmm. about.
3: Yeah, there's like an absurdity and just in the in language itself because of the really we get invested in these in this meaning that doesn't really map onto anything. So it's like when you kind of expose how absurd that relation is, there's probably some type of surplus humor that whatever feeling that comes up or whatever.
0: Yeah, I wonder um, if he was a Freud guy and if he, <laughs> if he was, he was I, a smart I, guy, he was, I mean, he read, you know, and it's just that. The problem with comics is that i mean i want to look at somebody like carlin and go i bet this dude read chomsky and i bet he read all this stuff because he clearly has a political under like education underlying what he's talking about but the other thing about comics is that they tend to consider their job in doing stand-up to be actually a thing that would be impeded if they did read about the thing they're talking about because the whole point of being a philosopher comic like carlin is to work out these ideas bare bones without references and without you know anyone else involved just by doing like thought experiments and like Mm -hmm. logic puzzles and stuff on stage so he might just be he might be approaching some what would really prove like these theories to be true is if someone like carlin approached them without having read a book like this and yes. also come to the same conclusion you know it might be in there i'm not sure
2: i like the the term philosopher comic one of my favorite philosopher comics is nietzsche and freud explicitly said he wanted to avoid reading any nietzsche because he felt then he would have Who'd become biased that Nietzsche might have already explored all the things he wanted to explore. And so Freud was a little bit worried about being prejudiced or, or having his having his thoughts kind of overcoated. And so there's something to that, this, this idea of again, it's striking a nice balance, not you know, not necessarily trying to research too much. And which brings me to something I was thinking about too. I mean, since you're, you know, you obviously write your own material, you even said you're gonna you know write something for the for the stage what what um do you have any occurrences with stealing jokes or what are your thoughts on this whole notion i remember since we brought up louis ck i think there was some controversy with him and um gosh who was it uh Cook. yes do you have any <laughs> thoughts do you have any thoughts on, on this notion of stealing jokes and plagiarism in in comedic material
0: yeah. See, the Dan Cook thing is hard to remember because it's three controversies ago with him. Yeah, exactly. Memory hold, but that's what we, would have, we all originally kind of know this guy from, is because there was this beef about stealing jokes, which is so funny. I know someone who still thinks it's very important, and it's just so funny Like in in life, <coughs> being the age that me and all my friends are, having lived through history being alive again and you know wars and pandemics and stuff so some people that are it's still like this is a huge deal cracks me up right because it's actually in my opinion not that big of a deal because most of what's happening when someone tells the same joke as you as a comic is what's referred to as parallel writing which is just that you literally you found something that is actually generally funny to the public and to the you know your peers and stuff by sitting around all day thinking about things and then coming up with all the angles you can come up with about something and it really tells you how very little material there actually probably is that hits us in this way that uh you know represses and retracts and yada 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 right the other thing about it is i think that art and and jokes if you can conceive of them as art are something that probably don't really perfectly function in terms of intellectual property and we're getting away from freud here for a moment but like that's fine to me I and mean, it's communal practice and so yeah. trying to force it into a thing where you could even conceivably define someone as having written a joke all by themselves is a farce in itself because yeah. whenever you create art, you create it on the shoulders of everyone who came before you. And when you make music, it's like, you know, you play a G chord. Did you invent the G chord? That <laughs> yeah, song? Right. No, of course not, right? We're all using pieces. You would not be able to write a joke without the community of other people you live in. And you also wouldn't be able to fucking tell it because as Freud points out, that it only exists kind of between two to three people at any given time. Uh, why well, humor, I guess he describes as something that you could just sort of take in yourself, but then you're not buying and selling that experience. Right. Mm-hmm. There's also people who do get caught that whole series of events that involved Carlos Mencia, Louis CK. Right and uh, Joe Rogan and all these people who are now doing other things in the world Uh, back then. I mean, they did sort of expose a few people for having sort of probably deliberately picked up jokes. And that is a thing that comics do. I think, especially given that, like I said, you know, they're motivated by the thrill, not the actual, you know, experience of sharing joy in the world. It's, it's very thrilling to, to, tell jokes and have them kill so people are tempted and stand up to take a joke that they know works probably something that makes them laugh and then just take it and do karaoke with it essentially just tell it as if it was theirs and then get the laugh and that only happens probably because we're dealing with this art form as a commodity in itself because like jokes do work like that in real life you do just tell jokes that you heard you repeat them it's a good time mm-hmm. it's fun to tell them but specifically when we're dealing with capitalism and this idea that you you know they are intellectual property and that they belong to the person who told it first and also it's theft if you do that and then charge money for it right there's all of these problems that you know in my opinion are unsolvable in this situation until we do the thing you know what i mean wink wink <laughs> <laughs> it, it actually didn't get us that far from freud because of the technical section he does say
2: very much what you're saying about how it is a communal experience and when a when a new joke takes life it takes this life of its own and it spreads very like memes too.
3: i mean yeah. you look at this in the terms yeah. of memes and it just exploded yeah. even further a lot of the little theoretical elements here are really interesting familiarity being An element of the joke Mm -hmm. that's kind of i think what the device within memes are is the familiar familiarity with the meme itself totally and then you add that difference so it's like it's using that contradiction between the familiar like or you're familiar with two things but you can put them together and there's some type of surplus jouissance to doing that or some kind of comic effect
0: like condensation maybe happening between two things. I don't know.
3: We'll have. I have to leave Taylor to the. Con- I kind of skipped the parts about condensation.
2: Well, the condens the condensation was just. uh You already kind of described it uh, really know. well. No, well, I was going to say unconsciously. Jake- oh, okay, never mind. Well, I mean, <laughs> in the conversation collectively, but Jakey, the way you said it, I really liked it. Talking about it as short circuiting, right? Kind of like jumping, jumping ahead a few steps, right? And condensation works in that way specifically with. I mean, one of the first jokes he talks about are kind of these portmanteau words, which like Lewis Carroll was famous for this, you know, with um, chortle, you know, it's, it's chuckle and snort, you know, these ways of kind of cramming in more meaning in, in a smaller space. It's again, an economic model of, you know, saving time, saving expenditure of cycle energy, blah, blah, blah. But I like your use of the notion of short circuiting. And that's that notion you may or may not know this guy, Slavoj Zizek, who is a philosopher who like is kind of famous for his jokes,
0: right? His oh, I love Zizek.
2: Yeah, you love Zizek. Okay, good. Yeah, he's hilarious. So that notion of short circuiting, I think, is a, is a good catch-all phrase for for this notion of the of expenditure. Yeah, because it's like a drive circuit, right? Yeah. Don't Deleuze and Guattari
3: get into something about who gets into the circuitry of desire? I feel like this is something we've discussed or I've read.
2: Well, that's I mean that's Lacan, that's psychoanalysis. That's I mean even Freud's talking about about this. But but Zizek, especially, you know, with with his jokes and what's so nice is he I like it when he tells a lot of the Eastern European jokes and the fall of communism. and, And he's very clear about how jokes a lot of times were being told as a way of, you know, not just escaping the internal censorship, which is what Freud really focuses on, but bypassing these external censorships
0: right that's a good point because whether internal or external it's masking something and you do see jokes throughout history that serve to to mask something for like a social external reason like that that's just reminding me of a story somebody told me recently about their friends who are all colombian working in a like a warehouse or something and they were getting in trouble for using the homophobic slur, but they were using it on each other, joking around. But they're like, I do employee complained, you know, that person was actually offended. And so they switched it to saying it in Spanish and then <laughs> the boss figured it out and they switched it three or four more times. And then they eventually were all dying, laughing, calling each other like a doorknob or something like innocuous <laughs> or whatever. But they all understood what they were saying, you know? And like, I mean, that's like a... That's an no, interesting
3: but, look at form and content, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: and inside outside groups,
3: right? You know.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, that
2: that's one way to distribute the circuit in a way that that it can go beneath the like vigilance of the sensor. And when I mean when Freud's talking about internal sensors, and he hasn't yet come up with the idea of the superego, at least by name, but he's he's definitely thinking of it very much so in this book. That's when he's point, yeah. When he's talking about this kind of way of bypassing criticism, whether it be internal or with those whom were sharing the joke, and the form of the joke is one way to kind of bypass that criticism. And this is what he'll try to do and link it to his theory of dreams, because what does the dream content do in its different transformations of the, the wish is to bypass that kind of conscious level of censorship that would balk at... The audacity of the wish, right? You know, and and be able to disguise it, as you said, mask it.
0: Yeah, you know, I just thought of another really good example of that external version, which is just the "Let's Go, Brandon" thing, is oh. kind of doing this. <laughs> in that, the joke is that other people, I guess, ostensibly don't get what that actually means or whatever. So it's yeah. just like collective in-group, out-group thing or whatever.
3: The same repression has to be shared amongst the group for the joke to work.
0: Yeah right (laughs) i find it funny because it's stupid but i think those people think they're really getting one over on somebody which is probably an enjoyable experience Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah interesting how that works the dream thing is really interesting you know because so freud got famous you know had a big pop in his career writing the interpretation of dreams you know and i think there's been some criticism of this joke work stuff it sounds like he um you know had to write the sequel and uh sort of just took a lot of the logic from interpretation of dreams and then Mm -hmm. made a direct one-to-one copy here. And, you know, he's like, remember my old book, it's about dream work, (laughs) Uh, joke work. Um, (laughs) that being said, I don't a hundred percent think he was definitely right about what was going on in dreams either, but I do understand that he made a model and I do like kind of give some credence to, you know, this is one of those things that's like I will probably forever look at things force them through the lens of Freud to see if it shakes out and makes any sense. And sometimes it kind of will. So like, there's something kind of to this. I mean, it's conveniently similar, but I guess that's because his theory of everything is sort of, you know, that this is how the unconscious speaks to the conscious. And it is interesting how close it works. So like the condensation thing, I mean that, you know, in a dream that's, you need to get past the sensor, which is the thing that, you know, protecting you from confronting an image that would be too abrasive. Mm-hmm. So instead of showing you your dad's dick and your mom's pussy, <laughs> yeah, right. well, actually, that's not how condensing works. Condensing is like when the two things are combined into one thing, which is also, I guess I'm just retreading it to keep explaining the, the, no, concept. it's good. Listen, that good, but like the short circuit thing i was describing like you can almost see the way the space works in condensings if, if there's some reason that like you know i don't want to think about this one thing so the way that my brain you know condenses these two objects into each other to mask the true meaning of it ends up taking you know a bowling ball and a fucking gun or something and then turning into a gun bowling ball and then <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you can on paper see these two things overlapping creates more negative space around them, which is, you know, the the space that is traversed in the short circuit or that, you know, turns to steam and gets fired out of the piston or whatever. And that's pleasure, right? That yeah. experience is the pleasure you get from, I guess in the dream, it's something else, but or in the dream model, it's something else. But he's saying when you do this with a joke, that's why you have this instant moment of like... Oh, I've got a a feeling, you know, that's going to come out of me. And that's a laugh or whatever. And like, I was reading this and I was like, man, this is when I started to kind of turn is because he kept identifying a feeling that is totally real. Mm -hmm. The feeling right before you either laugh or you're like, you know, as a comic, you're sitting around and you go, oh my God, I got it. I got to reach for my notepad. I just (laughs) caught one. Like I always think of it as like catching something like something that occurs in the moment. And then you're like, most people would let this thing diffuse forever away, <laughs> but my job is I'm a fucking Pokemon trainer and I have to catch it and bring it to a thing. <laughs> so like I got take this moment before the feeling of novel of extreme novelty leaves me. Right. And like that kind of maps. I mean it kind of, you know, sometimes with the condensation thing, like, oh that yeah, that that feeling of you know, crossing two things and then getting like pleasure out of it. Almost the same way you would get pleasure out of like a mnemonic device like oh I thought of a really funny way to remember you know all of the you know things on a periodic table I'm trying to remember or whatever <laughs> right. Okay. I was just I've been um, relearning to play the guitar and I've been, uh, you know, trying to go up with all these mnemonic devices because I don't have a lot of time left in my life. I'm 35 years old. I'm going to die soon. So I don't have (laughs) years to practice guitar like a 14 year old. So I've been playing uh, this guitar video game and stuff and I've been, you know, doing little exercises and stuff. And I just I taught myself to remember the order of the strings. E. A. D. G. B. E. By using the demonic device, eat a dick, God bless everyone. And <laughs> it's like it's a you know, not the funniest thing I've ever written, but it's just made us laugh a little bit, right? Why does that condensation or uh, that um I don't know if that's condensation specifically, but that consolidation of information, yeah, right? Why does that why is that so pleasurable? You know? Well, Freud has the answer, apparently. I will be in the shower if I think of a funny enough tweet, I'll fucking
3: I will grab my phone and tweet that <laughs> shit out of the shower. You heard it here
0: first. That's uh
2: that's how <laughs> that's how Coop comes up with his bangers. But
3: yeah, they he's right there. They do they just come to me. They just come and then I've got to get it out quickly. Yep. And there's pleasure in mixing up, and I think in particular, like for me, mixing up philosophy and smut for some reason. There's totally. still some type of a repression against high. I think I even had a guy I had a guy come into my reply. You had one come?
1: Time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry.
3: A guy showed up in my replies talking – I made some joke about Foucault. I I think it was something about Foucault getting fisted, and the <laughs> gentleman was like, Classic. I don't know what you're doing with philosophy, but uh, uh, you should do more work or something like that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh yeah that rule and did is, was this one of the guys you said sir this is a shit post or something no like this?
3: i i didn't no i didn't even reply that, to this person because uh, like you don't even know who you're fucking with <laughs> like at this point right, right. Like, i fucking live philosophy dude you should do the fucking work motherfucker and laugh but, you world, know i wasn't i wasn't gonna grass. i wasn't yeah. gonna you know bring the uh, it's just not how i it's not how my twitter yeah. presence is man i'm just i'm about the jo- the jouissance for everyone let yeah.
2: I thought it was you and there was, you had a shit post and somebody took it way too seriously, which oh, on happens Twitter
3: all the time
2: happens on Twitter all the time. Yeah. people taking themselves way too seriously as though philosophy can't be humorous yeah, or fun. Exactly. Right. And, and I swear it was you or, or maybe I'm just remembering this because I'm, we're talking, but you, you kind of said like, sir, this is a shit post. And it was oh, like, definitely sir, this, sir, this is an Arby's, you know, like, or Wendy's, whatever. It, it was just, we need more of that. We need more levity. I if think. you
3: show up Emma replies mad, that's, that's on you, dog. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: These uptight, repressed figures, kind of, they work in this model, right? I mm-hmm. mean, they're the people that the jokes sort of, like, use as as targets or work against or something. I mean, yeah. in order for this thing that Freud's describing to work, people have to have repressions. Sometimes I'm thinking about what he's saying, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if Freud holds up because, like, people my age seem to be free of these repressions. And yet we still have dreams and jokes and stuff like that. But, you know, I also might be dealing with a limited sample of people, which isn't representative of most people. And then also you do see these repressed people still walking around in the world. And like, as a comic, they're in the audience, right? So I've got to meet them where that repression is like liminal, you know? Is that like
2: playing the room? Do you, you start to feel out in a set kind of, I mean, do you have like a set that you're going to like go through no matter what? Or do you do you start to feel a vibe in the audience? Can you say anything about
0: about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the best comics know that you play the room, you know, and I think like a lot of comics get frustrated because it is easier to just. Do a set that you've got worked out, and assume that it's gonna copy and paste mm-hmm. and work everywhere. And like, you know, with like what's going on right now with the <coughs> massive nexus of information that we're all sort of working through, the thing where comics are getting mad about getting canceled. You know, I, I always tell them like that's part of the play in the room. Like, you yeah, gotta understand about me is that honestly, I'm a far more filthy person in my sense of humor than you'll probably ever know, unless you come see me on a, like a Friday night late show because that's the only time that the room is really like acceptable because we have to because everything is online now you know mm-hmm. there's like ten thousand people that listen to my podcast i don't really punch that hard on it i mostly it's just kind of goofy and i go you know here's what we can get away with every time we do it and and uh and that's for a reason you know because like you do have to sit there and calibrate and like in a live stand-up show I've got like a list of sort of everyone has their own method there's no like real tried and true method but for me it's like I got like a list I'm working off of and I'll actively sort of make notes and go like not gonna do that joke because yeah there or like you know it's almost like fucking Star Wars or something like a heads-up display going you know you're kind of like running numbers and going this joke is gonna piss that person off but it's gonna it's gonna make 20 people laugh hard yeah Yeah. person but then i have to kind of get them back and stuff yeah that's the true art form i mean the truth about stand-up is it's this stuff but basically formed into this performance Mm -hmm. where my favorite quote about it anybody ever said is the audience is the instrument you're just sitting up there they're the keyboard you know you're just thinking about all this stuff and really trying to touch that liminal edge enough everywhere within a randomized group of people every time you do it so, you have to think about all that shit, and if a guy walks in with a fucking top hat and a monocle and he's super repressed, I'm gonna just have to figure out how to meet him where he's at. You know.
3: You were joking about earlier about you know people talking about comedians being shamans, but I think this does map a little bit onto these practices of the chief and shit that we've looked at in anti Oedipus in the way that sort of the chief's role was to m- more so to mitigate conflicts within the tribe. What's one of the best methods to getting? people to to mitigate that conflict is to make them laugh right yeah so i think there is there is a certain element of this shamanistic chiefdom that's probably how that social practice evolves over time you know and then it becomes you know as once capitalism you know it it just accelerates in a whole different direction but it's like sort of evolving out of these different social processes or or what have you that even predate civilization so to speak you know
0: also, when I think about how Freud relates to writing jokes and like the shaman thing and everything, I think about the surrealists a lot because they came in the wake of Freud mm-hmm. and sort of took this newly proposed over sort of way of looking at plumbing the depths of this the unconscious and actively took a role in it. Whereas you know they probably even would argue everyone else was taking a passive, you know, swing at this and. Right. Creativity does come from the unconscious, but they were doing stuff that someone like David Lynch does where like, mm-hmm. you know, you ask him what his movies about and he goes, I have no idea. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> That's not how you write a movie. And like with writing jokes, A lot of times you find that's true. If you sit down with a piece of paper and you write jokes on top of it, you'll be staring at that piece of paper (laughs) for like hours because that's not how it works. Or if you are like on assignment and you're like, I have to write a joke about Ukraine or something. It's like way more difficult because you're like trying to intentionally do it. Whereas... The surrealists, you know, would have told you that, yeah, you know, I mean, look at what Freud's describing here. It's this thing that kind of comes off as a byproduct of yep. stuff that's like stirring within you and you just sort of have to catch it passively. You know,
2: I like that that idea of I think Coop and I talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's it's kind of like consciousness can get in the way. I use the example of um, uh, being up at bat playing, waiting for a pitch. If you just relax but focus on the pitch. That's one thing. But if you're thinking actively of like, okay, how's my stance? How's, you know, you're, if you're overthinking it, my swing needs to be, you know, whatever. If, if you don't have that muscle memory to rely on and you're in your head, it's not going to work. You're going to yeah. strike out every time.
3: I but had this ish- issue more with pitching. It'd be like, okay, I, okay. If I was thinking about throwing a strike, couldn't fucking do it. Yeah. If I was in my head thinking about throwing the fucking ball, like I just, I couldn't fucking throw a strike. You're going to throw it in the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. The backstop, whatever, for real. Mm -hmm. like Literally, like this actually happened to me. I would be like, I can't, I just can't do it. (laughs) I remember a game. If I I can't pitch that day, I just, I can't fucking do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I just have to,
3: I had to like start over the next, the next day or whatever, you know.
2: I think you're right. If you have jokes written at the top, as you said, I love that. You're going to be staring at a blank page.
0: You know, another thing I've been thinking about during this conversation is like, there's a great joke on 30 Rock where Jack Donaghy, the boss man CEO wants to act and he's never acted. And so he's filming a scene where he's just supposed to walk down a hall and he like is moving his arms as he acts. And he's like, is this how I walk? But if you've ever acted, it's immediately like that. I mean, that's also what the skill of acting is, is like to try to work yourself out of that self consciousness and, mm-hmm. and back into the loose territory that exists. I mean I guess that's one of the perks of of method acting
2: is you're you're living this life so that when you're in the scene you're at the moment where you're no longer imitating it's no longer about imitation or or like can I be recognized as this you're you're sort of already in the the life mode of uh, I'm not an actor or even interested in in method acting but some of my favorite actors like Val Kilmer or Dennis Hoffman you know have taken on these uh these, this, the method, as they say, and you can see some of the results, but you can also see some negative results. Like, I believe, was it Heath Ledger? Was he also kind of method acting with the Joker, or was that just a coincidence? Hard I
3: can't to say that's certainly attributed to it, but I don't know how much credence that I'd actually give to it.
0: Certainly, the mythology, you know, right? There you go. That's the mythology. How do you method act the Joker, right? I guess that would be that's uh, I mean, every... I don't know. I've
3: been doing it my whole life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Not even kidding. Just turn the camera on. I'm not not even joking. (laughs) I do the Joker. I'm not, I don't have an internal monologue. That's the real me. I am being the Joker right now. No, (laughs) doing it the way we're describing, you know? I wanted to go
3: back to Jake. You fucking crushed that talk about condensation. I thought that was fucking awesome. Um, Thank you. One thing I wanted to mention about that was, and Taylor, you can help me here, is it kind of reminded me a little bit. I I just wanted to bring up, I guess, the concept of return of the repressed Mm. because it felt relevant, right? in terms of psychoanalysis. I get Return of the Press is Lacan specifically, right? Or is-
2: well, it's it's actually Freud. It's just Freud? Okay. It's Freud. He first comes up with it and um, he first really kind of starts coming up with an interpretation of dreams when he kind of talks about these revenants that, that were kind of haunted by and they kind of return. Lacan says that the repressed is the return of the repressed. Go ahead and figure that out. But I mean, <laughs> in his model, and in his model, I think it makes sense in the sense in which just to stick with Freud for a second, for Freud, repression comes both from the unconscious and the conscious, and it meets. So there's a repression pushing down to keep the unconscious from coming up, but there's also this forepression. It's almost like they're repelling each other and keeping a balance. And it's once that balance is, to use your, your phrase, short-circuited, or there's a way of lifting, there is enormous amount of energy saved, because if so, for Freud, he thinks about it this way, repression and forepression takes so much energy that to lift the repression, you have a saving. Now, and I think that it's in that saving, that surplus, that we can have returns. And for Freud, this is one of the reasons why he's kind of critical of jokes, at least on one level of this model, because for him, the joke lifts that repression momentarily, but it's almost like it, it doesn't lift it in a way that psychoanalysis could by working through. It kind of lifts it for the moment, but puts it back down and may even help to reinforce it, which is, I think of, um, are you guys familiar with like Carnival? Not necessarily in Brazil, but like in the, in the medieval days, Carnival would be this kind of turning of the tables where the, the rich parade around as the poor and the poor parade around as kings. And Bakhtin goes through this and he's like, you know, this is a way of lifting these repressions, but it actually reinforces these distinctions even more so. Because what happens the next day, everyone goes back to their roles and they know their fucking role. And they right. know those roles can't be changed and that they're faded. It's, it's like the wheel of destiny.
0: It's the purge. It's the reason they have the purge in the purge universe. Mm-hmm. It, it holds together what happens on the 364 other days of the year.
3: Taylor, what about that? and the gayaki hunters though as a as a sort of counterpoint right because they're kind of their songs the songs of the gayaki hunters were their sort of schizoanalytic practice according to guachari right and it was to so, sort of the songs that they sang right were mourning their lot as so for jake the gayaki it's like a tribe in brazil so yeah. they um, basically the demographics of the tribe were such that every woman had to have at least two sometimes three husbands just based on the demographics
2: not many women Sure, yeah
3: a more abundance of of males than females etc so yeah there was like doubled or tripled up husbands and wives etc so there's a lot of resentment that builds up in those cases and they would sing these songs to sort of i guess
1: release they would go
2: off together in the night and kind of each sing their own song kind of hyping themselves up And it was a way both as a group, but also individually to just kind of vent their, their lot as Coop is talking about. And it's like venting, but at the same time, it kind of reinforces or restates the very fact that this is how things have to be because of the, there's two things that could happen. First, there would be internal strife because there'd be many men who wouldn't have wives. So you don't want that. Or they could, those men could band up and pretty much become an adverse tribe a raiding party something like that so to keep the balance you had women taking on usually more than one husband
0: this kind of reminds me of is like when cops dance you know or like (laughs) yes when uh or when masks were first a thing in 2020 and then you started to see like cute masks and stuff yes some people would react to that as like you know that was actually the really scary part because that meant that you knew they were here for good because this is a way of coping with this thing.
3: Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Nice.
2: Yeah. It's also the that Pepsi commercial that really went down very badly. I oh mean, yeah. Again, memory <laughs> holes, but, uh, it was one of the Kardashians, the younger one. I, I don't know their names, but Kendall Jenner,
3: I think, was. Yeah, was.
2: you you guys remember the Pepsi commercial? But for the audience, uh, it is kind of like the cops dancing because there's these there's this protest. Yeah, she
3: like hands the Pepsi. She bottles. hands a she hands a
2: Pepsi to to the cop, and it's supposed to, you know, be this way of making political protests uh, somehow socially acceptable by the repressive forces of the of the police squad and that belied the very real reality violence, of, yeah. of the violence imposed upon this was particularly i suppose was maybe this wasn't at the height of black lives matter but this is definitely doing fairly yeah within that realm for sure so it it's it's a very just tone deaf to use that phrase type of commercial trying to capitalize off of and making really making light, maybe not making fun, but definitely making light, uh, whitewashing. Let's say of the reality on the ground. Okay, what about the
3: recent Bowl commercial where they had the fucking Doctor Evil talking about climate change, and it was like a it was a car commercial. I didn't see this, but oh, hold on, I have to fucking pull this
2: shit up because this is too. Good. <laughs> I can imagine it. Was it?
0: These like, things wow? are making me laugh. These are within the, under Ford's model. This is humor because it's just a thing and then i'm laughing at it it's not like a thing i'm i guess we're retelling it to each other kind of yeah we kind
3: yeah, they of they had right. a fu- they had a fucking we're giving uh, examples yeah, of going, jokes this and is gonna telling fuck the up, jokes, up my so... my browser history is wrecked for going to this fox news link uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're going into joke analysis right jake so it's it's not as funny because we're reminding us of the jokes and uh but it just yeah. reminded me, like, yeah, it's like
3: a GM Super Bowl commercial about electric cars with Dr. Evil is that's not even funny. You fucking sick fuck. <laughs> that's fucking demented and sick.
0: Yeah. Right? Who is this? Well, Who's
2: going to buy a car because of that, though? I mean, uh,
0: like ultra spectacular Super Bowl level commercials are also <laughs> kind of draped in this, I like, kind of irony the stuff that David Foster Wallace talked about being like very postmodern there is kind of this understanding like something like the Dr. Evil commercial I think I could be wrong but I think what's going on there is that the people who made the commercial know that we're going to talk about the commercial not that we're simply going to enjoy it that we're going to be like Oh, that makes like, sense. They make money if everyone in America makes fun of the commercial and goes, Whoa, geez, what the hell? You know? And it's yeah. like. Right. Starting
3: a controversy. Yeah. That makes sense.
0: Okay. Yeah. And that becomes like a kind of market and a viral in yeah. itself, too. Like you set up something for then the audience to laugh at and feel autonomous in a sense, as if they are smarter than the thing. You secretly set up a situation where you cause them to laugh. So I don't know. It's fucking bizarre how that can work.
3: It's like the um, Tom Hardy meme. That's bait, basically. Yeah, that's bait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was thinking about this too, as far as the gyaki hunters, because of the also this discussion of how like you don't laugh at your own joke reminded me of the gyaki hunters not eating their own kill, the prohibition of incest as well kind of an interesting thing and like how this, now I I don't think that this necessarily always is the case, but you need this third person yeah. who he talks about to create this humorous triangle.
2: It seems like you can laugh at your own joke, but you can't be the first one to laugh at your own joke, right? I mean, that that might kill the joke. And Bojar kind of says, if you're the first one to laugh at your own joke, you kind of destroy the, the social collective sharing that the joke is meant to be a part of.
0: I think Freud is correct to differentiate between what are the three things, humor, the comic and jokes, because you do laugh at your own jokes. Sometimes Mm -hmm. like I, when I'm writing something will, especially when it's novel and it occurs to me, I'll laugh at it and then I'll write it down and go, this would work as a joke if I I'm shifting this thing in from humor to a joke, I think in this way of looking at it and go, uh, you know, this, this then turns into what he describes in the joke situation as a thing that tragically, like you lose a lot of the gas on the thing on your end of the experience when you tell the joke, but what you're lacking now on that end of the equation, you're gaining a surplus of on the other end of the equation. Yeah person who's hearing it is hearing it with extreme novelty and they're hearing it you know like you grabbed it and you're you have control over it you can be harnessed it that's what i was looking for like you're hearing it harnessed in a certain way so i think that it's probably how you would square that circle because it is confusing because you want to say well if he's right about this then you never laugh at anything but i think it's because when you're laughing at it it's it's taking in a different the- register yeah yeah you can't tickle yourself that is something that you might think about when looking yeah. at this uh, is, the the feeling of physical like whatever the fuck is happening being tickled <laughs> by i don't know what that is but like it definitely has something to do with novelty or something because it has surprise, to surprise yeah yeah you can't surprise yourself unless you have memento shit going on or something
3: <laughs> or you're on a lot of edibles
0: <laughs> yeah yeah you're right there are fucking people who might get high enough to go fuck you freud i can you don't tell me what i can and can't do and you know accomplish some of these things but wonder what's going on there
3: i think it's also funny sometimes like you'll hear a comic laugh at their own joke and that that makes you laugh too
0: yeah
2: some comics can get away with that shit but i remember family guy making fun of what's his name he does the late night show now jimmy He's kimmel oh yeah, uh, no not jimmy kimmel um,
3: jimmy fucking f Palin. Palin.
2: Yeah, Fallon, the Jimmy, yeah, the Fallon Fallon would laugh at too at, many
3: Jimmies. What the fuck? Yeah, well, Fallon
2: F- Fallon would laugh at the skits during the skits and Great. and kind of take you out of it. Like I'm thinking of the the Cowbell skit with uh Christopher, with Christopher Walken. Walken. Yeah, with Christopher Walken and Fallon's just just there laughing. And you know, he's more or less well at SNL, we can talk about its downfall, but uh that's an example that doesn't work, but I I assume there are some comics that can.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, I'll give you an example. Well, like, yeah, you can't you know,
3: like see? laugh at someone if they're like cracking up at their own joke, but it's like that goofy little, uh-uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That kind of like Jake knows what I'm talking about. Like, yeah, kind of like laugh at you. Know, it's not like a full on laugh, but it's kind of like. Uh-huh.
0: No, this is interesting because it happens in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it works, sometimes sometimes it doesn't. Something I've noticed is uh, you can tell somebody in real life is bailing on a joke that they're telling when they start laughing at it and no one else is this is like Um, I mean, I always feel really cruel when I notice this because they're not comedians. It's just some lady in an office or whatever. People do this all the time because they're uh, reaching for this device. But I mean, it does work like a good example of it is Dave Chappelle. Comics all make fun of how Dave Chappelle, uh, like there's like an inside joke in stand up about how he he does this thing where he takes the microphone and he bangs it on his knee and he like slaps his knee with it. That's when he's broadcasting that this is the punchline to the joke. It kind of sounds like cheating but it is like a device and it does work and like cosby also was like a master of this it's always funny because every comedian is a canceled monster to bring anyone <laughs> up whatever. but like cosby would do this thing where he would tell s- stories sitting down and he would pull the microphone away from his face while he was talking so that he uh would become quieter and sound farther away and then we got to this big ass climactic punchline of the story he'd pull the mic closer so he became loud and slap his knee at the same time and all of this stuff is like you know it's it's like accessing like mirror neurons or something in you that make mm-hmm. you empathize and suddenly start laughing with him especially cuz he's speaking with such authority and control so there's something to this i think
2: i like that notion of kind of um Triggering the, the mirror neurons in, in the audience, you know, that's a nice technique. To it's a little
3: Pavlovian response. It's like mm-hmm. you're like you're right. It's like you're sort of conducting the libidinal investments of your audience with your little with your little phrases, your little your little jokes, your little well, funny jokes.
0: Technique is especially the word for it because it is like part of the craft. And it's less intuitive to people yeah. when it is intuitive to people. It's because sometimes being funny is intuitive to people. Some people are like really good at using it to survive or whatever. It is a skill, even when you are using it in your normal life. And uh some comics even do the inverse where they tell a joke very flatly Yes. Without laughter. And then that's very funny. Right. Yeah. But I think the thing to differentiate both that person and the comics I was describing from like a person who haphazardly laughs right after they tell their own joke is mastery over this part of turning, trying to turn the humor register into the joke telling register or whatever. If that makes that trans-
3: sense. Yeah. Yeah. Making
2: that transition. Yeah. What I've heard from, comics i don't i don't know a lot of them but i just want your opinion jake i mean is it part of the initiation process is you're gonna bomb a lot before you start to build up that confidence and that those battle scars stage presence yeah
0: yeah absolutely stand-up is a fusion of writing and performance so if you're a poster you're a writer i think that's like where your head's at learning to perform is where you're going to probably have to crash and burn a million times and the only people that ever seem to circumvent this truth about something like stand up are people who are trained performers in another area and they piss off comedians when they arrive on the scene because it seems to disprove this rule and then cause us all to question ourselves and (laughs) i just bomb for a hundred times because i'm not funny but usually the person didn't bomb their first time doing stand-up because they're an actor or like they did improv or something like that like
3: whenever will smith did stand up right yeah. To,
0: well, well, celebrities do it, and they just also have the fact that not only are they skilled performers, they are famous. So people yeah. are just sort of, you know, pay attention to them or whatever, regardless. So that's kind of what's going on there. But I do think that, like, it's important to isolate the artifice in some of this. And, you know, the point being that the humor or the comedy or whatever laid bare without the artifice creating a mystique around it that makes it confusing and hard to point out. Laid bare, you will see that what Freud is describing here and there being, you know, a lack of the stimulation and the pleasure you get from it coming out of the comic is true as opposed to what happens when the joke is told to the audience, I think.
2: I was thinking about this, um, and I don't know again if I'm going a little bit outside of Freud, but I could try to bring it back in. What do you think about the notion, the psychological motivation behind heckling? Is it to be a part of the show? Is it to, is it people just getting too drunk and, and, and meeting should have been spanked more as a, as a child? <laughs> like one of my favorite comics who handled heckling extremely well was, uh, Bill Hicks. You know, he'd probably be canceled today, but, you know, times change. I just wonder about, Is heckling also a part of this initiation and bombing and and hazing that comics have to go through?
0: I mean, it's a, a thing you'll encounter eventually if you do stand up. So in that sense, it's hazing, but it's not as though it happens more the first time you're there. I think you're probably onto the right track when you said it's that people want to be part of the show. What's happening in performance a lot of the time is an illusion, you know? What you're doing when you do stand-up, the reason it works is it's sort of boiled down this thing about performance in general, which is that there's an inherent deception, which is, the lie is, I didn't write all this stuff, I'm saying it all right now off the top of my head. Everyone knows that isn't true, but when you engage in a performance that's done well enough, you suspend your disbelief for a moment and you're able to follow and pretend that the person is saying all this stuff as they say it. And same thing goes for TV. Like, I, I don't smoke weed anymore because it just started giving me panic attacks. And yeah. I think it, it hits me way too hard. But, like, I mean, it did get me super high when I smoked it. And I remember having this experience a lot of the times where I would try to watch TV and I wouldn't be able to watch Seinfeld and go, This is Jerry and Kramer and right. a Diner. I'd be like, These are actors. And it would yeah. be, a, it would, to lay it bare in a way that was extremely unpleasurable. Yes. And, uh, but it made me think about what it is to make a TV show. You know, it's an illusion at all times. And it's kind of absurd. If you think about how yeah. often we stare at a box absurd, in the yeah. rooms and like wonder whether the guy on the screen is going to make it over the Grand Canyon on his motorcycle or whatever, knowing it's, you know, if you thought about it, it's all fucking bullshit. Right. So like, I think what's going on with hecklers is, you know, it almost kind of is making me think of that thing. And I'm assuming you guys have seen hyper normalization, the, uh, adam curtis documentary no um, really oh do you know uh, adam curtis it
1: sounds i know familiar.
0: It, yeah.
3: i've seen um, some of it yeah i just, know just I know
0: give me the rundown yeah, yeah give me the rundown oh okay well you guys definitely should check out adam curtis he's a okay. um a documentarian who uh sort of is in this wheelhouse he deals with a lot of you know philosophy and stuff like that and uh psychoanalysis and all sorts of things and creates these grand theories of what's going on over history and stuff um and he puts really weird cool music in his documentaries and has access to all this bbc what do you call it? Of oh, the archives, so he makes mm-hmm. collages and shit. Super popular on the left. People called him like the left. People have called hypernormalization loose change of the left because it just radicalized so many people, in like twenty sixteen, because it came out right before Trump got elected and stuff. But he talks yeah. about this thing that happened where somebody did a, an experiment with where they created a. This is like in the seventies, I think, like an early computer program, right around the era of neoliberalism sort of becoming, you know, into existence. And uh, all it was was that if you you sat down to this computer and you said hello to this thing it would know how to say hello back and then it would say how are you and it would start asking you about your day and then more and more people became able to like become tethered to it Mm -hmm. and it's artificial but people would sit there in the experiment and open up to this thing and become addicted to it and it's so dark to look at now because it makes us think about our phones that we stare Mm -hmm. at all day and have this artificial relationship with especially over things like twitter where you sort of are being rewarded for saying things and you know getting these little dopamine hits and stuff like that but i think with the heckler you got somebody especially because they're you know loosey-goosey you know they're they're lowering their inhibitions drinking and stuff i think that they're letting themselves engage in the show in that way even though, if they really thought about it, they would realize this is like an absurd thing to this do. Yes, yeah. Because <laughs> it's a facsimile of it. it's a one-sided conversation, and I think hecklers decide to resist the impulse or to not resist the impulse to give into the impulse to make it a two-sided conversation. Right. Hmm.
3: There's a whole exhibitionist thing. I wonder. It works. That's true. There. It's a counter
2: exhibition, right? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's like touching the stripper. You know. Yeah, there you go. Right. Exactly. adding <laughs> you that you're not supposed to do that. You
2: know? yeah, that's you're breaking that fourth wall, and uh, I like. But you're right. This uh, some of the best ways of I've seen hecklers dealt with is this. I'm having this one sided conversation. You're this is not your hour or thirty minutes or whatever.
1: And but you
0: do like, have to remind them. Like, yeah, the, I mean, exactly. This, what a like. I mean, I know using this as a joke, but like, what a stripper is doing is a a fantasy of the fantasy is this woman. The really fantasy
3: of yeah. lap, right.
0: you know, and like is really interested in me. And a person, it can work so well that a person gets lost in it and yeah. thinks because they're high and stuff and they're having <laughs> time, like that this is really happening. And like the bouncer or whatever is the same as the comic jolting you out of it and going, you, you, you got too into it there for a second. This is artifice. You have to fucking stop. You know. Yeah.
3: I have a question for you, Jake. It's totally off topic as far as Freud goes, but just kind of curious because I'm sort of a neophyte, I guess you would say. What is anti-comedy? And I asked this question specifically because I just last weekend I went to uh, I went to the Creek in the Cave and I saw Stopperus. By the way, they had a twelve dollar what was it? Fucking Delta Eight joint. But you could only smoke it outside. It was something I like I saw that Yeah, yeah. I definitely posted. <laughs> I posted the menu from it because I thought it was pretty funny. I was like doing research.
0: Yeah. Anti-comedy. That's a really good question. I'm not sure if it's. Because like I've just
3: noticed Stav. He didn't really do. I mean, I guess. And I've seen you too. And I'm trying to think. You said I remember less because it's been f- further back.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's,
3: it feels like there's less, I guess, setup punchline type shit, and it's more like storytelling. Although there are both, you can do difference, and you can do with them both at the same time. I'm sure, but I don't yeah.
0: Think. Well, I would say um, setup punchline comedy and like storytelling comedy. That's just a difference of long form or short form. Anti comedy is usually a term that it refers to. People that would approach comedy with a sense of irony and sort of make fun of comedy while doing comedy. So, you know, there's something very vulnerable about doing stand up. So in the hipster years, you know, in the years when everyone was wearing the little glasses and the plaid shirts and everything, and there was some sort of massive phenomenon of uh, postmodern disaffectation happening among young people. People would come to open mics and, like, me and my friends would be, you know, these young, drunk, sort of karaoke crowd type of people that had bonded over the nature of doing an open mic, which is vulnerable, you know, almost like trauma bonded with each other over like having engaged in this thing where you all watch each other bomb and you all, you know, share too much and stuff like that. And then we would always get really annoyed because somebody would come in and do an open mic set. As a joke, basically, you could tell that they, among their friends, had sort of egged some person on into going and doing a joke, and then they were going to film it and put on YouTube or whatever. But the thing that was always annoying was that they would not engage with us sincerely. It would be some person who would stand on stage and tell like bad jokes on purpose, right? All the time, you know. What do you call a what is the joke where I'm a fun guy, like a guy who's a mushroom or whatever the fuck? Afraid not puns, like cliche
3: type shit. Cliche, Basically, like, the shit that I do on Twitter. Bad, like, bad puns, yeah. bad puns. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's like bad puns could be fun too, but the the yeah, way sure. it, it was the way that they approached it, which mm-hmm. is that like if a joke didn't work, they would go, they'd have this air about them of like it wasn't supposed to work because yeah. I'm making right. fun of comedy, right? I'm not doing comedy, and like I'm, a, I'm above,
2: I'm above it, right? And and so I'm not included, and I'm yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excluding, I'm I'm above it all. Yeah, I see that. That like being a meta said, comedy
0: yeah it's very meta but that being said i mean i think the ultimate anti-comic is andy kaufman and he yeah. was i love andy kaufman so like there's some level to which you know you can i don't know it's a hard thing to. See, what's, what's interesting
3: here too right is there's a there's kind of a repression at work right it's like you're not doing the thing that you're supposed to do at to do comedy almost you
0: know does that yeah. make sense yeah it's a total repression that's what was so fucking annoying about it those <laughs> open mics i was talking about <laughs> It was like, you know, the person saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't do this or that or whatever. But that being said, I mean, comedy itself as a like a art form is, you know, it is playing with all of these things. That's the art form is playing with all these dynamics and stuff. Yeah. So it's almost like an artistic movements where like everyone's doing ultra realism or something. And then like if something comes about and causes someone to flip the whole thing on its head, you do have to kind of hand it to him. And with, there are great examples of people who, who are, I mean, Tim Heidecker, like Tim and Eric are kind of like that. I'd say that this recent special that Tim Heidecker put out is probably anti-comedy. He did a special basically just as a, an edgelord and did it badly. And like did an hour's worth of what it's like to watch some dickhead who you know, thinks he's <laughs> basically a reactionary and like, does not really have a sense of self-awareness and, you know, is is, Therefore, a bad comic because he does not, you know, edit his jokes or think that they're bad or anything at any given point. He did a whole special like this. I watched it. It's mind, you know, numbing to watch, but I also, but I like, I appreciated it right. because it was a commentary on this thing. I'd call it anti-comedy. I don't know. I mean, that's kind a really of big... like,
3: kind of like what Colbert was doing with um, the Colbert reports. You right, he was playing that character, like, and everybody knew that he was playing a character, but. Every, everybody
2: there's some some, some he still got some people but yeah I, but don't, when, I,
3: don't know. I don't know man if you're getting got by the colbert reporter
0: <laughs> i think he was doing you're not gonna satire. make it satire, <laughs> satire. He, yeah satire that's what i'd call that but you're yeah, right. right it's really close parody satire yeah <sighs> yeah i don't Koff know
2: cough is, is a great example of this i mean like like I said, just go up and read Freud's book, and there's there's something anti-comedic in or any book that you were talking about the intellectual, you know, exploration of how jokes work. As you said, they always come off just as so fucking cringe. There is a way that you could turn that into anti-comedy without it being the the arrogant comics that you hated. Kaufman kind of committed to doing his. Performances, whatever you want to call them, right? Because since he, I don't know if this is true or not, didn't think of himself as a comedian. But one of my. He might, not, uh, he might,
0: have, he might have thought of himself as a performance artist. Yeah. Yeah. Kaufman, um,
2: you couldn't do this today, but in the 80s, when he and Jerry Lawler in Memphis Wrestling had their, their beef, you know, Kaufman gave a sort of legitimacy to wrestling or at least got, got it over this act of uh, feuding with Jerry Lawler and the and the neck injury and the David Letterman spots. Because I think of, I, I kind of think of, I still watch wrestling and it's gotten worse every year, but there's, there are still some, especially the heels, the bad guys in wrestling that are able to play a crowd in a way that makes me think of a comedian reading a crowd. And being I mean, like, The Rock, for example. The Rock the did, yeah.
3: I mean he yeah. was one of the best his whole shtick was fantastic.
2: Yeah but the Rock was was a cool guy. I mean like yeah he could get heat and but you never really hated the Rock, right? I guess there that's are, true, yeah. That that's kind of what I mean. Like there are some heels that Like Flair, Flair was far more hateable, but He was hateable, but still cool as fuck, right? Cuz you wanted uh, to eat I don't know. When I was free. a kid
3: I when I was a kid I hated Rock. Okay, Flair, Flair. okay. I hated Flair. I loved Sting and he would always fucking True. Steal the but you, but you
2: kind of want to be, you <laughs> wanted to be Ric Flair because he was the jet flying, you know, kiss stealing, wheel dealing guy. you know, like, but there are some really shit heels that know how to piss off a crowd, and I wonder if there's something similar in that aspect you know of the spectacle of wrestling.
0: I think that you might have, I think we might have figured something out here. I'm spitballing here, yeah. but I think this might be a good definition of anti-comedy, which is, okay, so, you know, Freud talks about the third person a lot, right? What's going on in joke telling a lot of times is I'm the joke teller. I'm telling it to a second person. And then there's a third person who's sort of like watching this whole thing happen and getting the byproduct effect of like the spectacle, right? Watching the whole thing. You see this a lot in online culture. Somebody pointed out like Reddit and stuff and like podcast culture recently that there's like a all of the people that are fans of like podcasts and uh, posters and stuff like that are kind of taking on like a Renfield sort of character. I yell at everyone on Twitter and I get yelled back at stuff, right? Most of the guys that come after me, I'll say like, uh, you know, well, you suck and you aren't a good comic. And they'll go, that's not the point of what I'm saying, because they're there to speak on behalf of another person, right? There's this weird third position people are taking and going, you know, I'm just here to cheer on this other person. This is very much like pro wrestling, right? So they're yeah, watching mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the Apumi. Yeah, (laughs) so they're watching us, you know, hit each other back and forth and going, I approve of this or whatever, right? Well, so in most joke telling in this way, it's me or the person I'm fighting, hitting each other and then having our sideline audience cheer very much like a wrestling match. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're recording of what we're doing. But what Andy Kaufman is doing very much involves a third person, but it's inverted, right? Andy Kaufman sets up a situation where he's going to tell a joke supposedly to a second person. And then he does the most obnoxious thing of all time. And it sucks and it's horrible. And it subverts our expectations about what's supposed to be happening because on paper he's bombing, but the whole thing's hilarious because it's designed for the third person. Who's the only person who understands that it's bombing on purpose. Right. So it's like a wink between the first person and the third person. Second person gets cut out of it, which is like, you know, who cares?
2: Yeah, it's it's short-circuiting that second person. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, it's So beautiful. it's an inside joke, but it's inside out, you know, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's probably a reason that that sort of humor had such a rise in in the culture of our generation, you know, because we had these forums and stuff like that that people didn't used to have we had this way of hanging around on the internet all day and talking about things after the fact that you know i mean you know, look at Andy, someone like Andy Coffin. It's like he was able to do this sort of thing without all that technology. That's like yeah. a huge feat. But for us, right. it's like, I mean, literally every day of my life is just group chats and, you know, looking yeah. at things from this point of view. So I think it's a reason that, uh, well, it's probably the reason he speaks to me, you know, because I'm somebody who, like, noticed this way of doing things. And then there's this great person who, like, did it, you know, and made history with it. I don't know.
2: This is a famous example here, Coop, of the of the kettle of... The three excuses for borrowing the kettle. This is one of the most famous Freud jokes.
3: Should I read yeah. this? So people yeah, don't know read the it. the fuck we're talking about? Read it. It will be recalled that the borrower, when he was questioned, replied firstly that he had. This is all, I guess, in the context of someone who's. Who's borrowed a kettle. a kettle. Basically sets up an absurd situation that has no. It makes no sense. It's nonsense. It will be recalled that the borrower, when he has questioned, replied firstly that he had not borrowed a kettle at all. Secondly, that it had had a hole in it already when he borrowed it. And thirdly, that he had given it back undamaged and without a hole. This neutral canceling out by several thoughts, each of which is in itself valid, is precisely what does not occur in the unconscious. The whole reason I even included this in the notes is because it reminded me of, I think, the Rat Man. right? The Rat Ratman was, was one of Freud's cases. He basically... Developed this whole circular story about how he was supposed to give this person money. And it was very similar to this, the circular nature. Like it was a total nonsense story. Like there was no solution for which this person would actually get paid. And this was part of like the rat man's whole pathology or neurolog- neurotic situation that he was going through, which is the only reason I, like I said, I
0: included this. I vaguely the rat man.
2: I guess it's interesting to think of what he means when he says this does not happen in the unconscious is that. The canceling out wouldn't happen in the unconscious. I think that's what he means—that all these different contradictions can exist in the unconscious at the same time without them canceling out.
3: Oh, okay. Uh, uh, you know, like there, Ooh, that's there's, like that's interesting so, in terms of Deleuze and Guattari, but I won't. Well, I it's just it's there. just
2: that it's just that the unconscious doesn't recognize negation, doesn't recognize death, and you know this is one of the reasons why when I said earlier about cracking jokes at at a funeral. And Jake, you were very perceptive when you were like, that's that's one way of, of managing grief. That's one way of dealing with it. That I think this, I'm not saying it's rare, but it, it sometimes comes off as inappropriate when Freud kind of says each person deals with their grief and their mourning in different ways. It's not always to, to do this collective crying. And even though that can be cathartic, and that is, that is a more common in our culture, you know, cracking jokes and making well I mean jokes. I think
3: that's precisely the dialectic, right? It wouldn't be so it wouldn't have the I guess libidinal expenditure or if there wasn't that repression against, right? That's what makes the release possible is the tension, is the is the dialectical yeah. tension between these two sides of the of the hydraulic model of the unconscious that Freud's always talking about.
2: Yeah, and it wouldn't actually be as effective if everyone the majority weren't crying. If the majority were cracking jokes, then I don't crying know if- yeah but then crying would
3: have more libidinal it's, it's hard to infectious. say it's hard to say well you think about it in terms of words right there's nothing particularly there's no reason why we should specifically have libidinal investment towards a towards a word like fuck or come or shit right so it's kind of the same thing i i feel I,
0: i've been thinking about this a lot lately because of every week in comedy there is this but there's recently a person getting called out who's white for saying the n-word right rogan had to apologize for saying the n-word and stuff and there's all these failing philosophical arguments you'll hear in defense of him which is um you know basically if you're a fan of a comic like that you'll say well it wasn't racist because their intentions weren't racist and yada 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 and it's like you know pretty much move the goalposts a million times in defense of this person but what's what's always so fascinating about these people to me is that they seem to be insisting upon a situation in which You as a comedian should be able to do these taboo things that that you define yourself by, by being a transgressor, you know, but you should be able to do them 100% of the time without there ever being consequence. That's kind of the world that a a comedian wants to live in, which is absurd, because if there was a 100% rate of success with. Everybody People would be like, doing it. Yeah. It wouldn't be a joke. Like it wouldn't be funny, I guess right? That's true, the whole right? Yeah. point of the joke is that you're, it's like a risk, right? So I think that they're like not seeing this dialectic thing you're talking about, or like it doesn't work unless it's edgy, right? It's not edgy unless it's, yeah, you know, risk of exactly. failure. So, It seems to me that as a comic, the only way that makes sense to engage in stuff like that is to accept the failure when it happens, but uh, that doesn't really seem to work either. So this is one of those things where I'm like, this is just capitalism needs to just not exist because it's, this doesn't work. You know, (laughs) this job doesn't really make sense.
2: Now it's interesting we were talking about condensation and jokes. And, you know, I was thinking about your podcast name. It condenses at least one or two jokes, right? Pod damn America. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if listeners remember the whole controversy when Obama was running for office the first time, but he had associations with a certain preacher who was taking on context, (laughs)
3: Jeremiah Wright. (laughs) That's hilarious that you say that, because doesn't Poddam still have the Jeremiah Wright opening?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a reference to him. (laughs) Yeah, which is (laughs)
3: hilarious that you brought that up. The coincidence is too fucking good. (laughs)
2: But but it, but it also is punning off of pod save America right which is kind of a liberal, yeah
0: okay. yeah it's like a, that's like, that's a
2: condensation right
0: yeah it's kind of a it's like I think there's three things going on there it's a triple condensation yeah okay, which is you know a ten dollar word for a pun you know or like a play on words or yeah. whatever it's a little corny even at this point but, it's but clever that's, yeah but that's that's functionally what it is as a joke, yeah. It's condensation, for sure. What's what's the third thing, then, that I'm Just next? that it's a podcast? I mean, because... Okay, could, you okay, <laughs> okay. One way, like, if goddamn America didn't exist, the sermon, yeah. calling a podcast pod damn America would just be a condensation of, a, this is my podcast and pod save... Wait, no, maybe not. Maybe I might be getting that backwards. All right, well, yeah, <laughs> I see what you're saying. There's definitely some condensation going on there.
2: It would just be an inversion of pod save America. It wouldn't have that extra...
0: right benefit and it may not be as funny then yeah yeah there's a really good i mean this is like so much internet humor is just that like people's uh handles oh, yeah. online you know or just you came up with chairman lma Al or whatever the fuck but that's funny there's a podcast i like a lot it's about the service industry it's called foh which is like my favorite version of this ever because foh if you work in the service industry means front of house mm-hmm. fuck out like, of here Uh, it also means fuck out of here on the internet (laughs) which is an insult which is a thing that you would say if you worked in service industry probably exactly that's great
3: I really love see my favorite thing is to put three or four different levels of joke into the pun to where depending on who reads it they're getting one element yeah at least
0: doing a lot and I, I don't always get it that's another thing Freud talks about right is how something's more pleasurable when you like are getting the reference in the thing and like really where i came around reading his take on jokes like that is that stuff like this is stuff that i've arrived at personally as a you know a comic and a comedy writer and stuff it's also stuff that like The history of comedy, people have sort of isolated. Like I remember reading a book about how they write The Simpsons. It was written by a bunch of old Simpsons writers, and like one of their philosophies was that they wanted, on a couch in front of a TV, anyone watching The Simpsons, they wanted there to be able to be like a child, an adult, and an old person, and all of them laugh at a thing for like different reasons. So a lot of jokes in The Simpsons are physically funny, which would be funny to a kid, you know, and they're like Maybe it's some, you know, timing thing going on that a more sophisticated person like an adult might get. And then like for, uh, I guess, the older person, the idea, the example they used anyway was that there's all these references to like, radio plays from the 1960s and stuff. The topical like humor jokes, yeah, and like really obscure references and stuff. But those if you're watching a show like the Simpsons and you get like a joke that they make about Naked Lunch or something and you're the only adult in the room that has read that or knows who William S Burroughs is or whatever, there is a feeling you get and Freud describes that. Like it's it's directly proportional to how hard maybe it is to get or like how much you think you're the only person around that got it yeah. there's a quote about God, when he talks about that there's like a quote about laughing hardest with yourself or something like that yeah right
2: I, it's the it's that i understood that reference meme the captain america thing yeah
3: this is what my whole my whole shtick on twitter is based upon uh, getting exposed exposing the business taylor
2: Exposing the business, a hey, well, I, and having having known you and gotten to know you more, some of that has rubbed off on on me. Yes, yeah, so I had a
3: deleterious effect on you with my. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I, I try, I try to keep my own humor. Just uh, I try to keep it separate. I, I don't want to plagiarize Coop's uh, Coop's
3: gimmick. <laughs> You've kind of like danced around it a little bit, but I think expectations are a big component of comedy, right? misdirection as well it's like that's kind of like the whole model the like whole point of the punchline model right it's like you get people going a certain way and then you flip them and that surprise creates the expenditure of laughter somehow but it's still operating i think on the same like model but it's a different Like he talks about this too but it's we haven't really mentioned much about that
2: i think about one of the first jokes i heard as a kid was you know why the chicken cross the road to get to the other side you have in the joke structure i a- an expectation of something unexpected, and then you get the expected, yeah. and that's that is so it's almost anti comedy, there, right? You know, that's yeah. it kind of subverts the model itself. But I'll let Jake answer.
0: Let's bring it back to his model, you know, because we're talking about comedy and you can get all over the place with that. But like, even, um, I, I was just thinking that thing I was just saying about references, you know, like I feel like I should put that through his model since we are doing a podcast about him and his idea of jokes so like what happens when you are recognizing that you are the only person in the room who gets a joke about naked lunch on a tv show that is making a lot of other people laugh right well i think the this like the space the surplus that's being expended there is you're realizing in a smaller group of people, we could just speak in this reference to Naked Lunch that we would both understand, but we can't because there's other people around who wouldn't get it. So I'm feeling pleasure in, in imagining for a moment a world where that becomes like a signifier, the same way that, like, let's go, Brandon or whatever the fuck does, you know? Um, it's become shorthand or whatever. With jokes, that's there's. There's this thing that he described that I thought was really interesting and made a lot of sense, which is that in a joke, you have a line of something that holds the person, an amount of the listener's attention to a degree that they then do not notice the contradiction that's happening like behind it or something. And if you can, and that's you know that's that's misdirection in jokes, right? Misdirection is like kind of understood to be an inherent quality in in uh, a lot of you know straight old timey setup punchline jokes or whatever. You have this very visceral feeling you can almost describe of you're being led left and then snapping back right or whatever. Mm-hmm. God, I'm struggling to remember that he he compared that he compared this process to dreams, and I, he said the dream does this. The dream doesn't need the distraction it doesn't need the thing that holds your attention in a certain direction because the dream operates in a different way it's purely because you're conscious and you're in the conscious and not in the unconscious Mm -hmm. that you need something to uh keep all this stuff kind of behind the scenes for a brief moment i thought it was really interesting Um, yeah the the dreams just trying to keep the function of the dream is just to keep
2: us asleep and when it's filtering through the 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 wish through the the different mechanisms that mask and disguise it. Yeah. And it's it's different for the joke. It's it's to keep us keep our attention. And so there's it's that attentiveness. It's in both ways that our attentiveness gets subverted, right? The attentiveness on in the part of the dream is subverted to allow the wish to be transformed in the dream work. But in the but in the joke, the attentiveness is getting as you said misled almost in the in the magic trick right are you paying are you paying attention are you watching yeah. closely
0: like sleight of hand or something where <laughs> one the magician's hand is moving in one way so that the other hand can do something that you know then then you see you know the product of and and it creates a sense of novelty i think another thing maybe we should cover just just uh because i don't know if we got to it entirely is probably the nature of what he describes as the tendentious joke because he describes a couple of different models of jokes and i'm i guess what i'm really most impressed about about with this book is his ability to fit everything back into this basic underlying model of the economy of the the psychic energy and cathexis or whatever yeah uh, look economics we call it yeah <laughs> i think that he probably was onto something with tendentious jokes which i guess is a a way of saying transgressive jokes in comedy shorthand you know edgelord shit or dirty comedy or like edgy you know whatever something that's really interesting to me about the edge in general is that it has a few different modes so like cursing is interesting did you know when they originally wrote the script for deadwood the tv show about the old west that they originally wrote it in the curse words that were like of the time, of the era and gotcha. place of Deadwood, which is a real place where cowboys shot each other and stuff. And the show, the first script was bad because there are two types of curse words in, you know, what do you call it? Linguistics, I think, whatever the studying of this types of words from this way is. Most curse words are scatological, but some of them are blasphemous, yes. right? hell damn all this stuff that's funny to us now to hear like what the that's a you know how's that edgy right well at the time and place of deadwood the worst thing you could call somebody was like a heathen so like the show sucked they said that everyone on the show sounded like yosemite sam (laughs) (laughs) and then uh they changed it famously and made, made this show great by switching anachronistically to scatological curse words so now you've got this great main character if you've never seen the show Al and the thing everyone knows about him is that he calls everyone cocksucker and it's like awesome right that's really interesting (laughs) but that that's related rather than for a reason so like what he's saying about tangential jokes is that anything that that occupies you know one of these spaces like scatological or blasphemous or whatever that the person is is capable that a person can be capable of making taboo in their own mind in dream work we do this masking to make it able to be you know slipped past the sensor invisible in a dream in joking we're consciously doing this because Mm -hmm. we have things you know like shit and piss and come and also i guess for some people who really have Jesus in their brain the fires of hell you know all of these things too far if you were to just say them to somebody so your mind has come up with this way of plumbing it out of the unconscious into the conscious world you know almost like a trojan horse or something by like slipping it through you know through this this thing we're describing whether it be you know using the distraction or the the misdirection or like condensation or whatever but like explaining this a lot to try to map out what it is because I do find this to be kind of true. I mean, everybody made fun of this comic a couple weeks ago, Whitney Cummings, because she was defending Rogan for the N-word thing or whatever and she proposed this model pretty crudely, but you know, it's still a model which is that she described the comic's job as guiding you through a spooky mental haunted house as she put it or whatever. Okay, okay. It's funny because it, it's. I think it, there's some degree to which that is a thing that comics do, but there are complications in the argument she was making about her, the implication. One being, I think the major thing is to understand that it's probably not Joe Rogan's job to guide black people through the trauma of the N-word, right? That's, yes, <laughs> yes. A black comic could probably do that a lot better, right? And without the audience rejecting the graft in such a way. But that being said, there is... Like if a black comic did that, you know, if a trans comic talks about their own experience to trans people, if the pain is oriented in a way that's uh you know dynamically like it works better or whatever, then uh this is a thing that you know most comics will tell you you know we're damaged people, you know we're we're hurt people, and we make medicine because we experience pain more than anybody else, you know, so we understand it, and so like this tendentious thing he's describing i mean i think I think that's really what is at play with specifically comics that obsess with the edge and it is well meaning but it's just such a volatile fucking thing that most people don't have a mastery over it and it slips out of their hands and fucking hits the wrong people all the time and that's where all the controversy in the comedy world of like today comes from but i gotta say more than anything i think i really agree with freud on this point some things you can't get away with saying so you say it in a joke you know
1: Yeah.
3: yeah. Oh yeah I'm just fucking with you. Random fact about Whitney Cummings is that she, I think she has a master's or something, and she wrote like her thesis on Baudrillard.
0: I wouldn't okay. be that surprised. She's um, she's a store rat, and so uh, you know, is kind of within the realm of like the category of people that I'd often make fun of myself, but I've noticed that I followed her quite a bit and she doesn't really succumb to a lot of the stuff that the culture of like the comedy store really warps people into. She does a lot of the time because she's a comic and she works there, but she breaks sometimes. And I've heard her say very smart things, which is why I was a little hesitant to make fun of her over that spooky right. metal haunted house thing. But I still did because she's yeah. a comic and we right. all, you know, entered into an agreement with each other. <laughs> yeah, You got to bust yourself those balls, right? I mean, that's Plus- part of,
3: Plus, it was probably more about her friendship with Rogan than like her actual concern about anything like related right. to comedy, I think, in my opinion. But whatever. yeah, I think
0: so too. She probably knows it wasn't quite apt.
3: Yeah. Or maybe she doesn't. Maybe it's an unconscious, right?
0: There you go. Maybe her name Cummings is a condensation of.
2: This was great getting to work through some of this. I'm glad that in the end, Freud got you at least partly on his side and and didn't completely just turn you off. (laughs) As I said, I'm glad you skipped that second section, the technical side of jokes, because you've already got that down. So he could have done nothing but further annoy you. He's approaching this work, at least in the guise of science And so there is that air that gets uh, added to his technical side. So, you know, I can't fault him for trying to proceed in that mode. And he's not a stand-up comic, you know, like he's, but yeah, he's in general, you know, give him what, three stars, maybe three and a half stars.
0: (laughs) Uh, I think I'm going to go back and uh, probably read the whole thing at my leisure at some point. Maybe I'll hit you guys up and we'll do a follow-up or something because I love uh, it. When I was reading this, I think I was i was actually really impressed. You know, I, I, like I said, I'm skeptical of Freud, you know, like yeah. I, just stuff that I'm like, I don't think holds up. And I think it's pretty common reading of him. But um, yeah, I mean, the jokes that he references are bad a lot of the times, but I don't think that's because of him. I think it's because of the nature of comedy, because comedy is um, temporal. It's highly yes. temporal. It's yeah. the most temporal art. So, you know, I could write a fucking joke book, this year or write a book about jokes this year and, and, and put it out next year and nobody would remember what the fuck let's go brandon was or you know right you know, this thing happens with um you know especially if you're if you're a twitter freak you know i mean think about an old meme it'll bum you out you know i was thinking about, <laughs> I was thinking about it and me the other day and i was like man people were saying that like six years ago and right. like God, why do I still remember this? And why have I been through a million jokes since? So I think that's part of what's going on there. And he's an you know, Austrian Jew from fucking over 100 years ago. So yeah. He doesn't share yeah. the
3: same repressions as us, exactly.
0: Yeah, it's For true. Not percent I mean, at least. Yeah, we definitely all have different repressions and stuff. But yeah. if the model is scientific, then it works with jokes from our time. And I think it kind of does. So I have to kind of hand it to him. Yeah, I mean, Lenny Bruce, one of the greatest comics of all time functionally unlistenable at this point just because so much time has passed and no one is thinking about spiro agnew's dog or whatever the fuck right you know so like that's part of it but i'm i don't know i i think i wasn't that big of a skeptic i mean like i'm curious now to read chapter two because uh at the very least this is all something to think about and i think there's stuff that we didn't even get to you know there's stuff like that he talked about I can't remember the, what his term for it, but I'm thinking in sociological terms. something am thinking in group, out group stuff. Yes. Yeah. No. Certain jokes work on that function. And you could even get into like anthropological arguments there about the amount of people that tend to group together and how, you know, there seem to be taboos about if you're in one tribe, people from another one and stuff like that. And that's where, like, that's why there's this tradition of racist jokes in humanity and stuff right. like that.
2: Like him talking about uh, the jokes that non-Jews make about Jews versus the jokes that Jews make about Jews, and and he he kind of goes through the subtleties of of that, and he wonders if if there is any other uh, ethnic group that is able to make fun of itself so so well. I thought that was interesting. The other the other problem, and Coop, I'll let you finish. The other problem, I think, in some of the jokes. It's not just the temporal thing, but the fact that so many of them, the translator has to go out of his way in order to let us know how the joke is working, in, working in the Austrian German that yeah. Uh, yeah. Freud is is immersed in. So if we were if we yeah. were an Austrian, we still might be able to get more, even today, you know, if we if we had fluent German, we still might be able, able to get a lot more today than we would if we have to read these footnotes. Right. That's just an extra barrier for us to, to be able to, to gain access. Yeah.
3: I was just thinking about this, and I'm probably five or six years older than both of you, but when I was a kid, this was like in the nineties. I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, but it would be a thing to wear like, remember like your mama jokes? But it also be like a thing where we called it ranking on people. So like we would get into like a like a rap battle kind of situation, but it was with insults, yeah. your mama jokes and shit like that. And it was kind of like this. It was like this competition type thing in like middle school who could like destroy the other person. Yeah, more, yeah I did that when I was a kid, Like rat, you know,
2: more savagely, I guess.
0: Yeah, we call it cut downs at my school. I don't mm.
1: know
2: why. I remember. Have you guys seen The Exorcist? There oh, was- yeah. There's the scene where she says to the priest, "Your mother sucks cocks in hell." This was one of those phrases that you know, obviously, is it adds the the pornographic with the blasphemous. It's it's like a, a double tendentious joke. And I remember uh, a friend that I just met asking me was going to make a your yo mama joke to me, but stopped themselves almost mid joke and said, like, you know, is your <laughs> Is your mom still alive? Like almost sensing that they knew my uh my mom was dead and I looked at them deadpan and, and said said that line, like your my mother's
1: <laughs> in hell.
2: And that was like better than any your mom they really, slapped you. Like well. <laughs> I, I I was just thinking about how I used to use humor as a defense mechanism, not just in grieving, but as a child when I would be getting picked up on for my name, like being called Gaylor and shit like that, you know, just all the jokes we all deal with and learning to self denigrate and learning to to be funnier than they were making fun of myself and you get them to laugh and then you kind of win them over to your side. You know, I'm sure we've all dealt with that
3: situation. Afternoon special shit right there.
0: Yeah, I mean that's like a total real thing, though. That's something you hear in... Comedy circles all the time. Everybody's freaking WTF interview, they'll talk about, oh, I was a fat kid. And, you know, I decided to, if I was the person who made set fun of myself first, then no one else really could. And that mm-hmm. totally is a function of comedy. And I think it's why there's this cliche about so many, you know, sordid, cynical, sad sacks doing it and stuff. That was illustrated uh really well on Game of Thrones, I think. Yes. The, Early episode or chapter, depending on what we we're talking about the Tyrion. book of the show. Tyrion, yeah, he comes to Bran, who's newly crippled, and he tells him that you need to take the thing that's different about you and wear it like armor. And that way, no one can hurt you. That's yep. he's describing what it is to be a funny person. And same thing, you know. And yeah, Tyrion yeah, was yeah. very funny. So it made sense. Yeah.
3: Maybe a good stopping point. To me, what I took most from the reading was more so what I think is interesting, I guess, is the. The libidinal economics of it related to repression, expenditure, jouissance, surplus. Thinking of the unconscious as that balloon where you sort of press one area and then that that displaced energy. Another thing we didn't say much about was displacement because that's kind of part of this too is displacing things in the unconscious and that contributing to the humor, like standing in for something else, etc.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, but like the thing that's hanging over all of this is really interesting and makes it impossible to disprove freud is no one can explain what laughter is it's Mm. anomalous to humans you know it is a thing that um it's just one of those things living in the year 2022 what fucking year is it uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah i literally forgot for a second it's 2022 you know you kind of You kind of marvel at the fact that there's this thing no one can explain yet. I don't know if I'm fully on board with to the extent of just belief that my mind is an economical space full of psychical energy (laughs) that, you know, gets squeezed around like a freaking balloon or like a, you know, the air in a musical instrument or something like that and comes out in various ways. That is a pretty bananas metaphor for something that holds all this together but as a metaphor it does flows
3: maybe flows of energy
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean it works uh, well enough to where it at least implies like the shape of a thing you know and that's better than anybody else i know has got it at this i mean i literally like started I was curious about comedy as a young person when I was deciding to try comedy. And I was, you know, super stoned and super young and thinking about this. And I was, why don't animals laugh? What is this? Why do we never think about this? Why can't you go to college and read a book that explains this? what the fuck. And then I just became obsessed with it forever for that reason. It's a fucking mystery. You know, it is the stuff that exists in philosophy. It's like looking at the moon or something and not being able to quantify it or qualify it. Yeah, this is great. I'm going to think about this forever. i will probably read the rest of this book.
2: I know that one of the classical philosophical definitions of the human, you know, if you exclude anomalies like the hyena, which isn't the, bear laugh is, is its own kind of cry. human being defined as the only animal that can laugh and I think in modern times even Sartre flirted with this talking about the only animal that can laugh at itself because that is I think one of the things we've come to is part of being able to laugh and being able to navigate our repressions is being able to make fun of ourselves right being able to laugh at ourselves and if you can't do that then how are you going to laugh at someone else at least without hypocrisy which we are all guilty of at some point but you know what i mean
3: jake i'm gonna put this out on march 7th so like next monday i don't know if you have anything that you want to pitch as far as dates or, or podcasts or whatever please feel free
0: oh yeah if you're in new york uh my monthly show meat space is happening on the 15th at the gutter which is in williamsburg and other than that just want to plug my podcast Poddam damn america we discuss like a politics show with comedians and it's you know we're leftists and whatnot my other show is called why you mad it's a little bit more of uh this sort of stuff mixed up with some pop culture philosophy and stuff like that I Do with an anthropologist she's very smart and then uh if you are i imagine where your listeners probably are at which is down in texas i'm going on tour for some reason with the band e6 from the 90s and another great band called we are the union which is a ska band we're playing the mo Hawk in Austin to kick off this tour, and uh, that we're going to roll everywhere else from there. And it's all uh, when is that
3: show, Jake? Because I'll definitely go, I'll come. That's on
0: the 19th of April, yeah um and yeah i'll uh i think i can get you in probably i've got a little guest list if anyone else is listening these shows are selling out we booked the comet ping pong pizza restaurant (laughs) oh my
2: god as a
0: joke and we sold out two nights in a row so if you are interested in checking out tour dates it's a nationwide tour the dates are all on eve six's website and my website and uh they're selling out so get them while you can I'll that's link it.
3: those in the show notes as well.
2: The comet is is the is famous for that one thing that happened
3: with
0: the, <laughs> yeah. The rifle. yeah, it's where it's the where the it's where Hillary Clinton rapes kids. Yes. Right, that's what it's famous for. Or, or eats
2: babies. <laughs> one of those, maybe both. Siphons adrenochrome. <laughs>
0: adrenochrome. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> in the basement.
2: That really exists, right?
0: Mm, yeah, that's where we're playing. <laughs>
2: Well, Jake, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was nice getting to getting to meet you. I know you've interacted with Coop before. This was this was a blast, honestly, and I'm so glad you did this with us. We'd be happy to do to do more something like this. Maybe maybe do some Zijek jokes next time. Look at those as as a model. I
3: like a Zupančič wrote that book on jokes as well. That might be interesting to look at or something. something That's a lot harder.
0: Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm I'm totally into it. So. uh yeah thanks for having me this is a great time i'm so glad i did this love theory and i definitely feel like while i'm reading stuff like this i'm like devoted my life to this thing i should probably look at what people think about this you know and so i'm really glad we did it so thanks for uh thanks for putting all this together
3: once again thanks to jake flores for joining us but that will be this week's edition of the machinic unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry Taylor Atkins. Peace. The very rules of
1: evil, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is how characters are the world state of things, view of violence without object.
2: This is a typical violence of
1: violent because what happens there is a the
0: murder of the queen, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
2: What I did is the following
0: with nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people as in block work orange.